Hey there, welcome to Non-Fungible Human with Dr. Owais Durrani, where we chat with thought leaders, influencers, and newbies at the intersection of Web 3.0, the blockchain, NFTs, and life. Awesome. Well, I'll give you just a little bit of context for myself so you know who you're, who you're chatting with. Uh, my name is Owais Durrani. Obviously, I am in Houston, Texas. I'm an emergency room physician. I you know, developed a kind of Web3 blockchain interest, I want to say maybe a year and a half ago. Initially, that was kind of more the pop culture side of things, NFTs, kind of getting caught up in the hype and whatnot. And you know, that's all fun and good and whatnot. But I realized that there's kind of a deeper, you know, society kind of layer to this thing and how it's going to change every aspect of society. And so that includes obviously pop culture, but that includes medicine, finance, law, things of that nature. And I wanted to kind of learn more about those things. And so that's what the kind of original idea of chatting with folks like yourself came from, you know, talking to people who do this on a day-to-day basis in different professions, asking them questions and learning about that. And so I know you have been involved with blockchain law and you know, spoken at many conferences and written papers and whatnot. And so that's how I came to reach out to you and was very pleased that you were willing to willing to chat with me. So thanks for that. Absolutely. Yeah, my pleasure for sure. Happy to share any insight or anything in that context. No problem. Awesome. I guess my first question is, how did you find yourself going into this, this field of law, blockchain law, and what exactly does that encompass? Yeah, no, it's a great question because I started on the tech side originally for blockchain I ran a crypto mining company and as well as an investment fund that was just basically buying Bitcoin and some other larger market cap cryptos and was writing about kind of the legal side of the industry when I was in law school, but it was more of just my own personal interest in the space. And again, this is years ago, so there wasn't really any area of law that you like theoretically practice in. And it was more about, hey, like what regulations would potentially apply or what laws would potentially apply in that context. And so published that, nobody cared. And then a few years later, ultimately, because I was running those other businesses, just started really interacting with other companies in the space and then decided ultimately to launch a practice that was very much focused on a problem that I actually had early on with my businesses where I couldn't find any lawyers that had any expertise in the industry or even knew what blockchain or crypto was. So having been in on it on the tech side and then really just from a personal interest perspective being in on the industry that kind of led me to the direction of thinking about okay what type of legal services could exist in this industry and so launched the firm and now i mean fast forward to today we represent a lot of different clients they're all in blockchain or crypto in some way shape or form but they're in a lot of different industries in the context of whatever industry they're operating in so like for example if we represent cryptocurrency exchanges that are obviously dealing in compliance and offering their services in different states, or conversely, we're representing a company that is maybe a play to earn game that is launching a token that people can earn in game and then play. And maybe it's a deck building game or something along those lines. Anyways, the areas of law, it really traverses kind of intellectual property, securities law, banking regulation, a lot of fintech, Uh, But then also real estate, uh, there's a couple other industries as well. And generally, it's kind of like pulling from all of those different traditional areas of law, because 
the technology itself is pretty disruptive in that context and can be applied. And so you mentioned pop culture at the beginning, like you think of NFTs and kind of Web3 and this whole movement that's going on in terms of not only artists representation of ownership, but also participation from a kind of user-based perspective. All of those now have kind of grown into larger contexts and have expanded to the extent that like there's a whole new area of law that's focusing in on it. So that's kind of what we're delivering at the firm. Yeah, that's really exciting stuff. I guess, uh, you know, the question from that is a lot of this is unwritten. A lot of this is new. It's kind of the Wild West. So how much of it is trying to figure out what was old that applies to this versus just kind of more experimentation and seeing what kind of holds up and kind of being on that cutting edge of, you know, creating essentially not new laws, but new, new frontiers and how laws are applied? For sure. Very much the latter. Yeah, we have a lot of kind of traditional legal insight from the context of whatever that sub industry is that our clients are operating in. But aside from that, we're having to kind of navigate, oh, okay, this technology is pretty borderless in its context of being able to transfer assets, tokens, right of ownership, whatever it is. And our traditional legal frameworks are very much jurisdictionally based and border based. And so you have a disconnect there. And so as a result, a lot of the kind of navigating that space is communicating with regulators or working with state legislators to try to construct some type of guidelines or standards and practices. But all of those are really just outgrowths of navigating and trying something and trying to see if that'll work. Like I think about kind of formation or entity formation in like the DAO context, like that's a process in of itself that has transformed over the years and has really been kind of a trial and error. It's like, oh, if we form this type of entity, is that going to hold up in terms of a representation of the, all of the distributed users within the DAO? And now we have states that are formally acknowledging it with foreign jurisdictions that are and moving towards more of kind of a, this standardization, very, very far from having where we should be, at least from my perspective. But, but yeah, it, it's definitely a lot of trial and error, a lot of navigating kind of, okay, if there's this legal case from the 1940s about securities, how does that apply to like a crypto asset or an NFT? It's like this technology is so drastically different from the standards that went into that opinion and decision-making that there's a substantial disconnect. And so it's it's really trying to mitigate risk in that context and, and, and try to obviously keep our clients away from potentially violating those legal parameters. Yeah, that makes sense. And how do you see, um, I guess, law schools? Is this something that they're taking seriously and maybe offering electives on these topics or are they not there yet? And they kind of see this as a fad because I guess that's where, you know, if you're a student in law school, you get exposed to it potentially and maybe you get more, more folks and more thought leaders in the area. Yeah, so I uh, started last year teaching a blockchain cryptocurrency law course at the law school that I actually went to, Drexel University in Philadelphia. And I think that is probably one of three, three or four that exist in the country. And every semester, there's more and more that are being rolled out. So there's definitely a trend towards more kind of an academic focus of incorporating this as an area for sure. But again, like I would say that the legal side of it is even a few steps behind kind of the technical side of it. So like MBA programs or like undergraduate programs would most likely have find more adoption in the context of classes that are going to be offered comparatively to law schools. But going back to your point, definitely that's kind of the initial exposure because for a long period of time, I mean, we're talking like from 2013 to 2020 almost, it's like it was impossible for any attorney to gain experience while in school in this industry. So the only word 
real way to experience it was either working for a company that worked in the space or maybe there's a specialized law firm that focused on it. And so now we're starting to see a little bit of a shift where more education is flowing in the context of blockchain and crypto in law school. But again, like very, very much tip of the iceberg for sure. Yeah. And I, and I feel like that's so important. For example, you know, in medicine, you get exposed to something in med school and that's how you decide you want to go into it. So hopefully kind of more change in that direction. I guess the, you know, if you are a normal person and you see Web3 and NFTs and whatnot, a lot of people, you know, associate that with unregulation scams, things that are very unstructured. In terms of regulation and safety and essentially the government understanding this, where are we with that when it comes to who understands it best? Is it the SEC? Probably not Congress, but are there, you know, certain, you know, congressional representatives who are taking the lead on this and, you know, maybe putting in place legislation? What, where, I guess, are we when it comes to, you know, some type of structure and regulation around this, this industry? Yeah, for sure. So I definitely still very much early days on the legislative side. So when you think of Congress at the federal level or any type of state legislature, there is just now starting to get some traction in terms of acknowledgement or some type of maybe legislation that's going to be proposed or passed in the context of acknowledging the industry and maybe creating some type of risk mitigation strategies that clients could implement. And so super early on in that context, on the more traditional regulatory side, so like you mentioned, the SEC. They've definitely been at the forefront of the industry for a long time, as well as FinCEN, which is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, trying to really create some element of oversight. And that's their main goal, because that's how they act as regulatory bodies in their traditional context as well. So they see kind of an avenue or an angle in terms of what part of the industry they're involved in, and then they're coming in and providing some type of guidance. Now, granted, they could definitely provide more guidance, and they are limited in the context of what their statutory authority is. And I really want to kind of overemphasize that point is that federal governmental agencies typically really get their authority from legislatures. So like the onus is really on Congress from my perspective. And we just had recently had a new bill that was proposed that would be really progressive for the industry, but we've had bills proposed in the past at the federal level that just have gone nowhere in terms of traction. So the industry has definitely changed, but at the same time, I'm not like super confident that it's going to potentially pass just because of what has happened in the past. So I think that's one of kind of the considerations of where we're at is that we have these tidbits of practical guidance, as well as administrative rulings that date back to like 2017 from some of these federal governmental regulators. And then we compile all that together and we have a general framework of how clients should act, how they should operate, how they should mitigate risk and so on and so forth. But if you're taking that and evaluating it comparatively to say like the traditional financial sector or the real estate industry or something along those lines, we're just so early on in terms of that development, there needs to be a lot more progress that happens. And I think within that, one of the at least disconnects that I've seen here in the United States, because we have clients kind of in most jurisdictions across the globe and like the EU is pretty proactive about like factoring in stakeholders from the industry. So companies actually operating in the industry and the US from a regulatory standpoint is a little bit more adversarial in nature. And as a result, like there's definitely collaboration. And I mean, my firm itself like communicates with regulators at the SEC pretty frequently and so on and so forth. But I think also at the same time, because their mandate is really regulatory oversight and that they need to like 
carry out administrative actions towards people that are doing wrong, that it's less collaborative in the context of like, okay, how should we really build out a framework that can be helpful and incentivize businesses in the space and also give them clarity? Because I think that's another thing too, is that this stifles innovation. And this is an age old issue, obviously, when regulation stalls behind advancement in technology is that we're in a place that is, has too much ambiguity. And so there's not as much innovation going on in the context of larger companies that would potentially get into the space and really get heavily involved and have capital they can contribute is that they're standoffish to going back to what you were saying before is that there's a concern around the industry around like scams and frauds. And all of these things are very real, not to say that there aren't. But if you just read like Yahoo News every day, you're going to get this mentality that that's all that's going on in the industry. And in fact, it's a very small portion of what is actually happening from a development perspective. So I think that's another conundrum as well is that legislators, they're not necessarily taking on this role of being like, okay, we need to be proactive about accumulating all the information from the actual industry itself and then developing something based on that. And, and do you think legislators are maybe not addressing this as acutely as they probably should be because they don't think it's that big of an industry or that big of a thing? Or is it, you know, more, you know, partisanship kind of leaking into this area or is it something else completely? I think it's actually that they just don't fully understand the industry. And so they're a little hesitant to kind of dive into it. There have been a couple federal elected representatives that have definitely come in in a big way in certain contexts. And unfortunately, I think in some circumstances, they just kind of, it kind of just shows that they actually don't know what they're talking about. And again, like a legislator's job is to have like cursory knowledge of all the topics they're weighing in on. But when you're making these claims and making these statements, then it can get a little problematic in the context of how people are perceiving the industry. And so I would say that this industry actually provides a good opportunity for bipartisanship in the context of people coming from both sides of the aisle. And we've actually seen that in the legislation that has been proposed. There's always been a code signer from either major party. So I think that that's really beneficial in the context of trying to kind of push it forward in that context. I think one of the issues, again, going back to my earlier point, is that I think that there are just kind of like there's a standoffishness to it because they're not fully understanding the impact that it's potentially having. And they're also a lot of times just coming at it from the consumer protection perspective. So they're like, oh, the only thing in this industry that's occurring is that like people can consider whether they want to buy crypto or not. And like, that's a very reasonable, justifiable question, but it's also a very specific question that is only one sliver in terms of the industry. So I think that's one of the limitations that's an outgrowth of their kind of just lack of understanding of what's going on. That makes sense. You know, I, I was pleased to see, I think it was a few weeks ago where, you know, they um, charged some open sea executives who were insider trading and whatnot. So it was nice to see that, you know, there are certain regulatory agencies paying attention to, you know, bad actors. One of the, I guess, kind of themes end of 2020, maybe 2021 was a bunch of Web3 projects launching and essentially being rug pulls where, you know, the founders disappeared and whatnot. In 20, mid-2022, is that something that they have gone after those folks? Is that less of a probability of happening? Or is it something that, you know, still, obviously, it potentially can happen? But yeah, I guess, is there less of a probability of that happening now versus a year, year and a half ago? Definitely in the United States, for sure. And I, th I think that that's been one of the kind of positives, or at least outcomes of a combination between regulatory oversight, but then also investor sophistication to understand the industry and understand the risk as well. I mean, I'll bring up the Terra Luna example, right? We had this massive stable coin that decreased in value substantially, and a lot of people lost a lot of money. And I think that there's kind of this 
onus on the SEC to provide some type of oversight in the context of like what information companies need to provide to people who they're potentially selling some type of investment product to or some opportunity. And so I think that at least from the perspective of the context of like projects and their size that are actually that this is happening to the larger the company is the actual actually from my, my perspective it's better because that means that these governmental agencies are going to pay more attention because if you have like 50 to 100 rug pulls and they're all pulling like 50 to 100 to 50 200,000 dollars no like there's not going to be much oversight to, in that context and so i would say that it hasn't really changed from a perspective of like really small projects and that's something I'm always kind of like, hey, people should be super weary when you're getting involved, especially early on. If you're considering a project that you're going to either get involved in or potentially buy the assets, so on and so forth. And also at the same time, going back to your earlier point as well in the open sea context, I mean, that's such a good example of a massive company that is potentially creating some type of issue in that and that these regulators are going after them. So I think that's a, that's a real positive. And we need that regulatory oversight because the assets themselves are presenting immense opportunities for individuals, retail investors, and really disrupting the kind of age old how like investment structures work in our society. Unfortunately, that a byproduct of lack of oversight or a lack of attention or a lack of understanding is allowing for those types of operations to exist, and then they're not necessarily being any punishment. So I would say that in the big scale of things, yes, in the last year, year and a half, two years, it's definitely changed drastically. But on a small scale, it hasn't necessarily caught up to the larger scale context. Fair enough. Yeah, there's there's so much potential here. And you hate, like you mentioned, you know, a few bad headlines on Yahoo or ABC or whatever the case may be to really steal the spotlight from all the good that's happening. You mentioned, obviously, you work with clients in Europe and probably are familiar with, you know, the regulations there. How far ahead are they in terms of, you know, regulations and their authorities understanding, you know, this sector versus us? Um, Have they passed major pieces of legislation or do they have some type of framework in place? Yeah, so they've definitely made some progress in that context. So they have these two general frameworks and without getting too substantive into them, the the idea behind them is really just creating some standards and practices for companies that are potentially going to like consider offering a token or consider offering a payment service product or something along those lines. Like the major difference there is that they've said, hey, if you're going to do this, do it down this path and we'll help you navigate this path. And so here, obviously, it's less of that communication that exists. And so I think that's really the biggest difference and is creating that disconnect. And I will say that like the EU is pretty advanced comparatively to most jurisdictions in the world in this context. Like they've definitely seen the value in the technology and see it, its implementation. And as a result, are trying to incorporate that into the regulation that they're providing. And so I would say that they're pretty far ahead from where we are in the United States in that context. But they're also the way that they pass regulation and as well as legislation is a bit different, obviously, because we have fragmented countries versus a bunch of states. And so that's why I think like if we have federal legislation in the United States, we would definitely not fully catch up to them, but it would be a really solid step in that direction to where they're at. And I think that's a super important kind of point to emphasize because where they're at is having a lot of innovation, a lot of companies coming out of the EU comparatively to the United States. I mean, we have clients that literally consider moving their companies either offshore or to the EU because of the more favorable clarity that is baked into the guidance that they provided. And I'm also talking about the like how often they're actually providing that guidance as well is that 
if I look back to the SEC, and again, like I, I, I can critique them all I want because I, I think that they should do more in the industry. And they've provided guidance, but they provided guidance in like 2020. And we have probably like 15 administrative rulings from them over the last five years. And so you pull all that together, it's a pretty scant amount of information and evidence that somebody can go off of in terms of risk mitigation. You look over to the EU, I mean, they're in the 50 to 100 publications of guidance that they've issued in the last couple of years alone. And they're also putting a lot of funding in the academic side of it. Because so we did, my firm, we did a a study for the European Union's kind of like policy publication arm, whereby we did a survey of all the legislation that was going on in the United States that was focused on blockchain. Like even something like that, like it's interesting that the EU is doing something like that to try to combine their resources to figure out all the information of what's going on. Yeah, simultaneously, like I look to the United States and it's all happening in the private context. It's not really publicly driven. And so I think that's maybe one of the limitations that we have here that creates more of a disconnect. Yeah. What um, can you point to a few states that maybe are leading the way in, in terms of, you know, the state level laws that are being passed and understanding of this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would pinpoint Wyoming, Colorado and Delaware for sure. So Wyoming is one of the first states to acknowledge cryptocurrency in, from the state legislature perspective. They also don't have a state tax on cryptocurrency in the context of businesses that are generating maybe profits in crypto. And then on top of that, they also recently passed the Wyoming DAO law, which is a DAO LLC, which you can actually go and create a DAO entity. And that's actually really important because the DAOs that came before that, there was no guarantee that the people who were launching the DAO would have any personal liability protection. And that's what LLCs do. They come in and they serve as this protection over an individual's personal assets. And so Wyoming took the first step of saying, hey, if you create this entity in the state of Wyoming, you'll have this protection. Now, granted, it's one state, it's one example, and we have federal preemption in the United States, which means that federal laws triumph over state laws, but at the same time, at least it's that one like initial step that we need. Simultaneously, Delaware has been one of the first states to publicly acknowledge share ownership in a company that is registered on the blockchain. So a blockchain transaction can actually be used in court to verify ownership of, say, your ownership in a, in a company. And that's an also another really progressive step in the right direction in this context, because what they're doing is they're, they're codifying this process. And so the way that that actually transpires or is carried out in real time is that instead of having to go to court in terms of a dispute and have this really arduous, long-term, very like resource extensive process for a judge to ultimately decide whether that is a legitimate transaction, well, now we have state legislature recognition of that. And so you can just have a very early decision in that overall process. And the amount of money that that saves in, in that context is just in of itself a justification to do something like that. But yeah, so those three states and then Colorado, I think, is also progressive because they have a, a pretty swap law that kind of serves similar to the Dow LLC law in Wyoming in that context and can be structured into a Dow. So uh, and also there's a lot of I mean, Denver has become kind of an innovation hub for blockchain startups and so on and so forth. And so the state legislature is very much kind of focusing on that and recognizes that. So they're they're all kind of in the lead. So say I, I created a DAO in like Texas where we don't have this law. What what legal framework is that under? It's obviously not an LLC. Is it you know, what what is that under? 
Yeah. So I think this is one of the issues is that you would most likely want to create an LLC and then launch the technical side of the DAO. But at the same time, there's no guarantee that you're going to have that personal liability protection. So I bring up this example pretty often. It's like if you go out and you launch this DAO and you register this LLC in Texas and you say, okay, we are basically the administrator of the DAO. We can carry out functionality. This DAO owns a painting and any participant in the DAO owns a fractionalized portion of that painting and their representation of ownership is in the form of a governance token, meaning that we need majority decision-making to sell the painting, right? So you have distributed ownership, you have collective decision-making, you have everything that is so great about a DAO. The downside is that you don't actually have any 100% guarantee that if, say, for example, they decide to sell the painting from a majority vote to ISIS, to use an extreme example, and now they've received funds from a terrorist organization, like how does that blow back on you as the initial developer and launcher of the actual DAO itself? And granted, like the distributed decision-making capability of DAOs is meant to defray your liability and culpability, but because Texas doesn't have that state level recognition of that type of entity, it's ambiguous. And so there, it's not to say that it couldn't have an outcome that could be in your favor, but just that ambiguity alone creates risk. And so I think that's kind of the major difference in that context of like, say comparatively to Wyoming where you do have state recognition of that entity. Yeah, that's a real good example. It really solidifies it and kind of shows where that gray area is. You you kind of alluded to Delaware and being able to prove ownership um, and the courts recognizing ownership on the blockchain. Maybe the kind of utopia is one day house titles, car titles, marriage certificates are all going to be on the blockchain. What in in terms of you know a lot of, that's kind of the big vision. What, what how long do you think it takes to get there? Is that like a ten year vision, twenty year vision, something that's even longer than that? And obviously, a lot of buy-in needs to come in from government, private entities, you know, all all the actors involved. But I just want to see as, as someone involved, how do you see that as playing out? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'd say 10 to 15 years, absolutely, in the context of kind of right and title really being shifted into its implementation in blockchain. And I think, unfortunately, that's a byproduct of them not having blockchain currently. So we have these very fragmented systems, right? Like I can think of house deed registration or something along those lines. Like it's so jurisdictionally specific because we have local state and federal rules to take into consideration that to say pilot a program and adopt blockchain, it would be super beneficial in that context. But for every jurisdiction to do that, it's just gonna take a really long time. And we're seeing a lot of advancement in this context as well, especially in like I was referencing these pilot programs where like cities that have a much larger populace, for example, in one specific jurisdiction, they'll pilot a program and they'll start registering all of the houses on the blockchain. Like there's there's a bunch of dApps that are built on the Ethereum blockchain that are utilized specifically for that. And so there definitely is like it's the process is starting for sure in that context. But again, like it's just going to take a really long time because the beauty of blockchain is you can kind of have this interaction between a bunch of different jurisdictions from a transactional ownership perspective. And that's exactly what the issue is currently with all of these kind of fragmented jurisdictional considerations. And so, yeah, I mean, over time, I think that there will be more and more ownership and right of priority. And I mean, we mentioned NFTs early on, like NFT representation of ownership of a car title, for example, right? We're talking about a QR code that links to a, a crypto wallet or a blockchain wallet on your actual phone that you can just scan via your insurance company or something along those lines. And then it's smart contract based and it settles based on these parameters and, and the process is just more efficient. 
And that's really what this is going to bring to the table in terms of cost savings at the business and personal level. And again, like I think just going back to it, it's just going to take a long time for implementation. But this it's funny how this kind of all comes full circle back to if you have federal congressional legislation adopting or acknowledging or at least setting out some definitional rules so that there's common understanding across the courts and across the state legislatures, that's just going to put a little bit of fuel under the fire for sure in terms of that timeline and shortening. Awesome. Awesome. And just a few more questions. Talking about NFTs, a really specific example, Seth Green, right? Big Hollywood guy, had, bought a board ape, created you know, some content around it, got stolen. He ended up having to buy it back from you know a third party who the person who stole it had sold sold it to. But say you know I have a you know a valuable NFT. It gets stolen right now. What is the what are the legal tools to you know kind of fend off against that? And are there any? Because it seems like he basically had to you know pay a premium and buy it back, and he you know really couldn't get his his NFT that he owned back. For sure. Yeah. And, and I think before I launch into the answer, one of the important points to make here as well is really understanding what it is that you're buying, because there's different types of NFTs, right? Like if you buy a Bored Ape, for example, like Bored Ape, the actual issuers of the NFTs were super clear from the get go that if you buy that Bored Ape, you own it outright, right? There's no connection of ownership back to the issuers. And that's really important because there's a bunch of different NFTs that now exist in the industry that aren't like that. And that's why like reading terms in terms of like, if you're going to access an NFT from a drop or purchase something along those lines, like making sure you understand the parameters of what you own is definitely from a consumer protection perspective, really good in terms of diligence and something that everyone realistically should do. Not everybody does that, but that's just kind of like a little bit of advice in that context. And so with Seth Seth Green's example, I think it's such a great kind of lesson learned for people who are like, okay, one, I need to step up my individual security-based mechanisms for determining how I store my information, how I share that information, anything along those lines, because this is one of the conundrums within blockchain in of itself, and not to get too theory-based, but when you think about if we away from the third party intermediary process, which is how our traditional society has worked, everything that we do, we're interacting with a third party. And there's a justification behind that, right? We can trust and we can also seek recourse from that third party. Well, if it's just a connection between Seth Green and the board Ape team that dropped the board Ape, and they're just facilitating a blockchain transaction, realistically, you've removed any type of third party intermediary that puts the stamp of approval on that board Ape. And as a result, Seth now has more onus on himself to up his security mechanisms and security procedures. And so that's something that I think is also not really talked about very often in this industry is that there needs to be more of an educational focus on making sure that individuals are taking their proper precautionary measures to when they're accessing these types of assets, because people are losing assets all the time just from their own human error that could be avoided had they understood or had they known like what is the proper procedure to do in this context. And then going to the actual question around like if if it's lost or if someone's stolen it, I think one of the questions that was embedded in my point is like, okay, who's the issuer? Is there any ability to seek recourse from the issuer? But as of right now, the majority of NFT projects, they're going to come back and say, well, no, we sold this in a public sale. We like we have no connection or ability to go after the NFT. I mean, this is kind of one of the double-edged swords of immutability in blockchain, right? Is that if I have an asset, nobody can access it. 
all right, well, if I make an issue or an error or something along those lines and now someone can access it, I can't turn around and say it's someone else's fault. It's my fault. And so I think that that's one of the issues really that exists right now is that companies that are potentially getting involved in this space or are involved in this space really need to take those precautionary mechanisms and put in those mechanisms in order to make sure that they're not potentially losing money in that context. Because, so, I mean, granted, Seth Green will be fine, right? He's going to turn it into a show and have all these licensing rights and everything along those lines, and that'll be great. But at the same time, that's such a good kind of example of a lesson learned because there's no guarantee that he would ever have gotten that back. And it's just happenstance and a little bit of luck that he was able to get it back. And so I think that's one of the conundrums in that context as well, because it's not like Seth Green could then turn around and sue like Board Ape. I mean, he could theoretically, but it's not going to really have any substantial legal claim in that context. Yeah, uh, as you mentioned, that's a conundrum. We, you know, are happy that there is maybe no middleman and it's all decentralized, but then that also leads to a lot of responsibility to yourself and whoever's holding holding those tokens and those assets. Final question, we're at a, you know, interesting time, the price of cryptocurrency is kind of in free fall, you have things like Celsius going on, lots of uncertainty, maybe some of that hype in 2021 has died down or on web three and NFT projects where over the next 12 months, do you kind of see some general themes like one or two general themes in terms of what do you see happening? And, you know, just any insights you think might might be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I guess this is my fourth. I did 2013, 2015, 2018, and now 2022 up for the corrections. And, and they're all really similar, just FYI for anyone out there listening. It's like it, it, there is a, a an overhyped element of this industry that occurs every so often. And as a result, a lot of times these corrections are really weeding out people that maybe had just gotten involved in the industry or were trying to capitalize off of kind of a quick fix mentality of wanting to like issue a line of nfts and then just like get out like i think that when there's these types of corrections one the maybe more unique aspect about this one is that there is obviously a lot more uh, from a traditional finance perspective money that has flown into the industry more so than any other time in history and so i think that there's that that's going on as well and people can become over leveraged more so than they would have been in 2018 comparatively but with all that aside, I think that one of the major benefits of these types of corrections is that it really is just going to weed out those types of companies or startups or individuals that necessarily weren't in it for like kind of the right reasons. And, and that's kind of like a heady way of thinking about it for sure. And a more practical way of thinking about it would be very much focused on this notion that, I mean, there's only so much demand in the space that can potentially occur. And so if you just think about basic economic principles, I mean, one, it's, it's, this doesn't always line up with a, an economy going to a recession. So that's definitely another contributing factor for sure for maybe it going a little bit lower than say the 2018 correction. So that's another contributing factor as well. But all that is to say is that I think that these are such great learning opportunities. And so my two themes would be like, it's such a great learning opportunity for those who are in the industry, who are in it for the long haul, understand kind of the disruptive nature of the technology and how beneficial it actually can be, not only from an individual perspective, but also from a business perspective perspective. And then two, it's also going to weed out a lot of those problematic projects that are out there and the scams and the rug pulls and the phishing and everything along those lines that we do need more regulatory oversight for. The good thing about this is that they now don't have as much capital to deploy those types of scams. And I think that that's a potential benefit as well. I mean, granted, there's, I think the other thing too, is that we're now blending more 
CFI and DeFi more so than ever before. So centralized finance is becoming a little more decentralized in a couple of different contexts. And I'm bringing this up mostly because you mentioned Celsius, but also obviously I mentioned Terra Luna earlier is that like, if I go and I use USDC as a stable coin backed by a formalized business circle in the United States, like it's, I have a pretty high probability that I'm not going to necessarily have what's going on with Celsius. And also there's FDIC backed insurance in certain contexts, if there's a loss, um, not by my own individual error, but by a general error, say on the, on behalf of circle. And so I think that's another component as well, is that what this is going to teach a lot of people is that it's important what type of projects you decide to participate in. Because when you look at some of the more decentralized, more kind of global traversing based projects that may have had a lot of success, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're complying with all the rules and regulations. And so when you're evaluating what type of projects to get involved in, that's something that should definitely be at the forefront. So that's kind of the general themes that I think that we should see. Yeah, I think that's a good note to close on. It gives me hope that, you know, there's folks like you who understand the complex legal framework and are doing work to kind of, you know, make this more safe and more, you know, long lasting than it would be if there weren't folks like you working in there. So, you know, thanks for that. Thanks for your time. I learned a whole bunch and I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You have a good rest of your day. Bye. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Non-Fungible Human. We are always open to suggestions on who we should have on next and feedback is always welcome. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show and we greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay healthy, friends, and we'll catch you in the next episode.